You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Scene of the Crime, The Murder in My Family, Malice, Missing Persons, and Three Men and a Mystery. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. It was 1972. 20-year-old Jody Loomis lived with her parents, John and Rosemary, her fiancé, Jim Roberts, and her younger sister, Jana, on Winesap Road, between the towns of Mill Creek and Bothell in Washington State. At the time, this was a sparsely populated rural area near Seattle. On Wednesday, August 23rd, Jody got on her white 10-speed bike and set off for the six-mile ride to visit her horse, Saudi, who boarded at a stable on Strom Road. The people who owned the stable were away, and Jody needed to feed and exercise Saudi. It was late afternoon, and while Jody visited the stable often, it was the first time she rode her bike alone through the rural area to go visit her horse. Usually, her parents or fiancé dropped her off. About halfway through her ride, she stopped to chat with a friend on 164th Street Southwest. Jody was wearing a crop top, jeans, and her 12-year-old sister Jana's hiking boots. At under five feet tall, Jody could easily fit into her much younger sibling's size five and a half boots. A witness, 14-year-old Kenda Rice, working at her family's farm stand, also saw Jody cross Bothell Everett Highway and pedal east to Penny Creek Road, heading up a steep hill. This was around 5 p.m. That was the last sighting of Jody before she was found by a couple driving along a secluded dirt road through the woods. This was east of the Bothell Everett Highway, near 164th Street Northwest, on private property owned by the Rice family. Around 5.30 p.m., an 18-year-old woman named Kathy and her older friend Walter, whose last names I'm going to omit because the two were engaged in an extramarital affair, were headed into the woods for some alone time, but their two-seater convertible was forced to a stop by a fallen branch across the road. Walter got out to move it. When he did, he spotted the body of a young woman on the ground nearby. She was still alive, but barely, with a gunshot wound visible above her right ear. Walter and Kathy put the dying girl in the passenger seat, and Kathy, who was petite, straddled the center console and used the victim's shirt to shield the young woman's naked torso as they sped to Stevens Hospital. Jody died before they arrived at 5.50 p.m. She was unable to speak before she succumbed to her injuries. When she was found, Jody had been wearing only underwear, socks, and her sister's boots. She had been clutching her bra in her hands, and the rest of her clothing, on the ground next to her, was scooped up by Walter and Kathy and placed in the car. Her right boot was tied, but her left boot was still untied. She had been sexually assaulted and shot in the head with a twenty-two caliber gun. Dr. Matthew Lacey of the medical examiner's office later determined from the bullet's trajectory that the killer had likely stood over a seated Jody and shot her, execution-style, as she was getting dressed. I spoke at length with Snohomish County Sheriff's Office Major Crimes Unit Cold Case Team Detective Jim Scharf, who solved this cold case with the assistance of genetic genealogy in 2018. 
Detective Scharf notes that Jody was putting her boots on before her clothing, as her pants were still on the ground as she was tying her boots. He surmises that Jody was perhaps lacing up her boots so she could get away from her attacker, and he recognized her intention to run and shot her. Now, even though police knew that the young woman brought to the hospital had been murdered, they had no idea who she was. They were directed to the place where she had been found by the witnesses, Walter and Kathy. Investigators descended on the area, arriving there in the early evening hours. They found Jody's bike in a ravine about 180 feet away from where she had been found still alive. It was about 300 feet down the dirt road and had been thrown into a deeply wooded, brushy area. Locating the exact spot where Jody had lain, they found a dime that had been in her pocket and a clip she had used to tighten her pant leg around her ankle so she wouldn't get it caught in the bike chain. But they found no ID telling them who her victim was. It was not until Jody's parents called 911 after dark to report that Jody had never returned home that police were able to establish the identity of their murder victim. When police arrived at the Loomis home that night to inform the family that Jody had been killed, her mother collapsed. The horse bridle Jody had been carrying was never located. The branch across the road that had caused Walter and Kathy's car to stop, resulting in their finding Jody, was chalked up to the Rice family cutting wood nearby throughout the day. A stroke of luck. Were it not for that branch, Jody might not have been found for quite some time. Jody was remembered as a bit of a hippie, an artist, a young woman whose passion was horses, someone who was outgoing and friendly. No one could imagine anyone wanting to kill her. Her fiancé, Jim Roberts, was never considered a suspect. He was ruled out with an ironclad alibi. In a crazy turn of events, Jim was actually working as a janitor at Stevens Hospital, the same hospital where Jody had been brought DOA, care of Kathy and Walter. But Jim didn't interact with patients, and he did not know of his fiancé's murder until he arrived home that night to find police at the house. Police investigated the case, talking to witnesses and eyeing possible suspects. They considered some male members of the Rice family for a time. Mr. Rice and his son, who owned the property where Jody died, had been cutting wood very nearby when police arrived to investigate the scene. But there was nothing tying them to the crime or motive— and the same was true for every other potential suspect considered by police. It did not help that some of the evidence in the case was lost. The bullet extracted from Jody's head was sent to the FBI for comparison to bullets collected in another local shooting case. The FBI returned the bullet, not finding a match. But the other case was eventually resolved, and thereafter all the evidence destroyed. And somehow, inadvertently, the bullet from Jody's case was commingled with that evidence and destroyed as well. It got worse. The pathologist contracted by the county coroner conducted Jody's autopsy and properly collected oral, vaginal, and rectal swabs. As was protocol at the time, the swabs in Jody's underwear were sent to Tacoma General Hospital for analysis. The hospital did investigate the swabs and detected sperm present, but then the swabs and underwear disappeared, and they had never been introduced into evidence in the first place. The murder case now had no bullet and no remaining evidence from the autopsy. The case went cold. Mr. Loomis passed away not knowing who killed his daughter. The family would have no answers for 47 years. She had her whole life ahead of her, and it was just taken away, just taken away. We live with that every day, said Jody's sister, Jana Smith. In 2008, the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office Cold Case Unit took a fresh look at the Jody Loomis case. Detective Scharf was disappointed to learn of the missing and destroyed evidence. But he discovered that sitting in the property room, in two separate sealed plastic bags, 
were the boots Jody had been wearing the day she was killed. He sent them to the state crime lab, and a lab tech there noted a tiny stain on the heel of the left boot. He tested it, and miraculously, it was a spot of seminal fluid. This spot would solve the Jody Loomis cold case. The spot found on Jody's boot contained microscopic sperm, and this was enough for investigators to generate a genetic profile of their killer. This allowed them to run the sample through CODIS, but it came back with no hits. Then investigators compared the sample against some men detectives had looked at in Jody's case, like some members of the Rice family, who owned the 1,000-acre property Jody was found on. No matches were found, but this progress after all those years gave the Loomis family hope. Jody's sister, Jana Loomis Smith, said, quote, I want them to sweat. I want them to know we're looking. I want them to wonder if there is DNA that can solve the case. Imagine 35 years thinking you've got away with it. In 2009, the Cold Case Unit created a deck of playing cards for distribution to inmates at prisons throughout the state. Each card featured a different cold case. Jody's case was on the Ten of Hearts. It was the oldest unsolved case in the deck, and the oldest in the county with DNA evidence. Although the Everett Herald featured each of the 52 cases in a weekly story for a year, Jody's case remained unsolved. Then, in 2018, on behalf of the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office, Detective Sharp contracted with Parabon Nano Labs to conduct autosomal testing on the DNA sample from the boot. Parabon uploaded the genetic profile obtained from the stain on the boot into GEDmatch and created a familial match list based on similarities in the suspect DNA and members of the public whose genetic profiles were in the database. Then, genetic genealogist Deb Stone of Kin Forensics in Washington found two third cousins of the suspect in the familial match list and set to work building out family trees to hone in on the suspect's identity. Deb has a website in which she detailed the work she did on Jody's case. She wrote, quote, I used that information from GEDmatch to build family trees and identify the most recent common ancestors of the suspect. Once identified, I located the children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren of those couples and searched for a marriage where the two ancestor groups came together that provided a focused lead for the police agency to investigate, resulting in this arrest. Because the relatives Deb found were third cousins, she had to go all the way back to the great-great-grandparents branch of the suspect's tree. She was quoted in the Bothell Kenmore Reporter saying, quote, A lot of people are going to be connected to those great-great-grandparents. Dozens of people. You build a lot of trees. One of the third cousins was from England and one was from Canada. It took Deb 57 hours of research using birth and death certificates, marriage announcements, and other public records to determine where the ancestral lines intersected. And all this pointed to the identity of a local couple who were likely the parents of the suspect. This was Jaquette and Albert Miller of Edmonds, Washington. Deb believed that the suspect who had left his DNA on Jody's boot was one of the Miller's six sons. Deb relayed her findings to Snohomish County Sheriff's Office investigator Jim Scharf. After looking into the six Miller boys, Detective Scharf tells me that they knew two of the brothers were dead and two were twins with developmental disabilities. That left two brothers who could be the offender. And only one of the two had a record of arrests or citations for sex crimes, Terrence Miller. He had been accused of sex offenses at least five times since the 1960s. At the time of Jody's murder, Terrence Miller lived in the 15900 block of 52nd Place West, four and a half miles from the place where Jody was found. 
In August 2018, undercover police staked out and tailed Miller, waiting for him to discard some item that could be tested for DNA. At the Tulalip Casino, they watched him sipping a disposable cup of coffee. When he tossed the cup in the garbage, it was actually two cups stuck one inside the other, they dug it out and swabbed it. The DNA on the coffee cup was a match to the DNA taken from seminal fluid on Jody's boot. Detectives began digging into Miller. Terrence Miller was born and raised in Edmonds, Washington, by parents Jaquette and Albert. He attended Edmonds High School, but did not graduate. Miller worked as a heavy equipment operator with the IUOE Local 302 throughout the state of Washington from the years 1958 to 1995. In 1960, at age 18, he married a 14-year-old girl, which is gross and illegal, at least today, and they had two daughters. They divorced, and he and his second wife had another daughter. They, too, divorced, and Miller and his third wife had two girls. He married his fourth wife in 1976. So Miller had a total of five daughters. But that did not stop him from preying on girls and young women over the years, including some of his own family. Investigators found that Miller had two arrests for offenses involving teenage girls. In his first arrest, when he was 18, he was collared for contributing to the delinquency of a minor and destruction of property. He and a male friend had been driving around defacing street signs with an underage girl. Now, it's not clear why he was cited for this activity with an underage girl when his marrying one had not been a problem for anyone. In Miller's second offense, his crimes turned sexual in nature. In 1968, Miller drove up in a company truck next to a 17-year-old girl who was walking on 48th Avenue West at 224th Street Southwest in Mount Lake Terrace, where he was living at the time. He called the girl over, and when she looked in the truck, he was naked from the waist down. She was able to get the license plate number of the truck and reported Miller to police. He wasn't charged with indecent exposure, though. He was just cited for lewd conduct and charged a fine. Then, in 1972, when he was 30 and a married man with daughters, Miller raped and killed Jody. Detective Sharp believes that Miller, who was described in newspaper articles as soft-spoken and small in stature, was a predator who attacked Jody in a crime of opportunity. He was likely driving home from work and saw her biking along. Perhaps she got off her bike to walk it up the hill. Perhaps she took a shortcut through the woods, and Miller was waiting. He accosted her about 300 feet down the dirt road, threw her bike into the underbrush, and took Jody, almost certainly at gunpoint, deeper into the woods an additional 180 feet, where he raped and shot her. Miller was never convicted of any past crimes, but that does not mean that his crimes stopped after he killed Jody. According to Detective Scharf, it was alleged that Miller raped two of his own daughters and tried to molest a third. His third wife, who was raising the two daughters Miller had from his first marriage, discovered this by finding some photos Miller was hiding. She moved out and filed for divorce about a year after Jody was killed. Miller was charged with statutory rape, but was able to negotiate a deal whereby if he completed counseling, his record would be expunged. He did complete the counseling, and not only were the records expunged, the entire police file on the incident was destroyed. Additional charges of molestation and sexual abuse were leveled against Miller throughout the 1990s. No charges were filed in any of these cases. Miller went on to marry his fourth wife, who was a neighbor during his marriage to his third wife. Detective Sharp believes they may have had an affair and then married. They were still married in 2019 when Miller was arrested. Okay, so detectives had the DNA linking Miller to Jody's case and the circumstantial evidence that he lived nearby and had a history of sex crimes. 
In April of 2019, they got a warrant for Miller's arrest and went and knocked on his door. Detectives found the Millers at their home, which doubled as the hub for their ceramics sales business called Miller's Cove, which operated out of their garage. Detective Scharf told me that when they arrived, Miller's wife invited them in. She acted very surprised at the news that the police believed her husband to be a murderer. She said she wanted nothing further to do with him. But this would not last. Soon, she would be helping him raise bail. As for 77-year-old Miller, he remained stoic and calm. He did not appear surprised to see detectives, although he denied any knowledge about Jody Loomis and said he had never seen her before when showed her picture. Detectives had reason to believe that Miller knew they would eventually come for him. One clue was that in the Miller home, on the coffee table, lay nothing but a seven-month-old edition of the Herald. Clearly visible was the large front-page story, Arrest Made in Cold Case. It was a story about how genetic genealogy had been used to solve the William Talbot case, which I will cover in a future episode. Charging documents for Miller later said, quote, The presence of the newspaper seemed, at best, an odd coincidence. A fair inference could also be drawn that the defendant was keeping track of the techniques that law enforcement was using to solve cold cases. The second thing that gives Detective Scharf reason to believe that Miller probably anticipated his arrest was that, believe it or not, Miller was in a bowling league for seven years with a person who would serve as a constant reminder to him of police commitment to solving the case, Detective Scharf's brother, who looks very similar to him. The detective had been on TV and had multiple newspaper article photos discussing the Jody Loomis case, the cold case playing cards, appealing to the public for tips, observing anniversaries of the case. Seeing his brother regularly for seven years at his bowling league, knowing who he was, likely had Miller looking over his shoulder for close to a decade. Detectives worked with prosecutors to put together their case against Miller. They believed that Jody's attack and murder were random, the hardest kind of cases to solve. Detective Scharf told me that this was a true case of murder by a stranger. He said in an interview, quote, We haven't been able to find any link between Jody Loomis and Terrence Miller. We think it was stranger-stranger contact. So this guy was a real predator. Miller, he told me, was not in the Loomis case file and was never on investigators' radar. Miller was charged with first-degree murder, and he pleaded not guilty at his arraignment. Although bail is very unusual in a first-degree murder case, the judge set Miller's bail at $1 million. Miller's lawyers argued that they needed time to prepare his defense, and his wife had had a stroke recently and needed help at home. So they negotiated the bail down to $750,000, on condition that Miller agree to GPS monitoring, house arrest, and to surrender his passport and any weapons. Miller posted bail, and on Friday, June 14, 2019, he was sent home to await trial. But then recorded phone calls from when Miller was sitting in jail revealed that his wife had made reference to driving their van, and they discussed going bowling. This showed that his wife was not housebound or disabled after all, and also the bowling outing would violate the terms of Miller's house arrest. He was rearrested, and his bail raised back up to $1 million. He posted the required $100,000 non-refundable bond and was released again. This seems like a lot of money for a man who worked as a heavy equipment operator. Recorded calls between him and his wife discussed their savings and where the money would come from. Apparently, they had more than enough saved, and they used their home to collateralize the bond. In an interview with Q13 Fox, Detective Scharf expressed his shock in hearing that Miller had made bail. He said, quote, 
It was pretty hard to believe that somebody could bail out on one million dollars bail. It's the only case that I can think of in my forty-two years in law enforcement where somebody bailed out on a first-degree murder charge. Jana, Jody's sister, publicly expressed her unhappiness with this turn of events as well. It's hard to imagine how she felt after all these years when they let the guy walk. Miller's trial was repeatedly delayed by a flurry of motions, hearings, and the COVID pandemic. His attorneys moved to have the DNA evidence suppressed, but their motion was denied. The case finally went to trial in the fall of 2020. The prosecution presented the DNA evidence as well as evidence that Miller lived nearby and had the opportunity to commit the crime. They called 27 witnesses who testified for the prosecution, including eight detectives, retired police officers, forensic scientists, and people who knew Jody. Two witnesses were deceased. One of them was Walter, the man who had found Jody in the woods. His testimony recounting the events of that day were read from a deposition he had been able to complete before passing away. It had been recorded as Miller awaited trial. According to the My Edmonds News site, the jury was allowed to hear jailhouse telephone voice recordings of conversations between Miller and a friend, and between Miller and his wife. In these conversations, recorded before he made bail, Miller referred to the period of the crime as quote, "a dark time in my life," and said that quote, "the DNA looks bad, and I probably won't be coming home." And quote, "when this is over, I'm going to be in prison, and that's the way it is." His wife responded, "I don't like to hear that," and Miller said, quote, "I know, Mama, but that's the way it is. This is not a winnable case. This is a DNA case, and they have an extremely strong case. You are not going to beat it." Miller's defense team tried its best to create reasonable doubt, arguing that the evidence had not been stored properly. There was cross contamination, significant pieces of evidence were lost, lab work was sloppy, and so on. Prosecutors were concerned that the only concrete physical evidence, the DNA, would not be enough to obtain a conviction. It had been done only once before in the state of Washington, in the William Talbot case. The trial lasted two weeks. The seven-woman, five-man jury got the case on November sixth, a Friday. On Monday morning, November ninth, after deliberating for about an hour, the jury informed the judge that they had reached a verdict. When the court was called to order at one o'clock p.m. for the reading of the verdict, Miller was not in the courtroom. Judge David Kurtz addressed the jury, stating, quote, "I'm sure that you have noticed that Mr. Miller is not present. I am sorry for everyone on all sides, but I have to report that Mr. Miller has passed away." It turned out that the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office had been called to Miller's home just before 10 a.m. on Monday morning to respond to an apparent suicide by gunshot. Terrence Miller was DOA. Since the conditions of his bail required that he surrender any guns, and guns, in fact, had been taken from his home upon his arrest, it wasn't clear how he had access to a weapon. But he did, and he turned it on himself, knowing that if he went to court that day and was read the guilty verdict, he would not have another opportunity. Detective Sharp told me that he had been concerned that Miller would kill himself, having been told by Miller's niece that Miller had made some comments to his family to the effect that he would never see the inside of a prison, and implied that he would take steps to prevent spending the remainder of his life behind bars. In some very unusual circumstances, even though the defendant was dead, Judge Kurtz requested the verdict form from the jury foreman and pronounced that Miller was unanimously found guilty of first-degree murder. The Loomis family expressed their mixed feelings of frustration and relief. Jody's brother John Loomis told NBC News he would have liked to see Miller go to prison. He got away with it for 48 years, he said in a phone interview with NBC News. John was 27 and no longer living at home when Jody was killed. 
I was so glad they finally got him, he said, referring to Miller's arrest. Justice was almost done. In a very sad turn of events, Jody's mother died while the case was pending. She was not alive to hear her daughter's killer declared guilty in a court of law. Kenda Rice-Musharo, who had been the last person to see Jody alive as she was working her family's farm stand that day in 1972, said, quote, I always wondered what would happen, what I would feel like when they found him. Now I know. It's a good day for her family and a good day for our family, too, because this puts it to rest. Kenda said that her father had been looked at as a possible suspect until the day he died. Detective Scharf, who was largely responsible for closing this cold case, said of Jody, quote, this was such an innocent victim. She was just riding her bicycle down the road when she ended up being raped and murdered. I'm glad we got to hear the verdict. I think it was good for the Loomis family. There was a hearing in the court case in late December 2020. At issue was a motion to vacate the guilty verdict imposed posthumously on Terrence Miller, filed by his defense team. At the hearing, Jana Loomis-Smith, Jody's sister, made a plea for the court to uphold the verdict against Terrence Miller, even though he was dead. Miller's niece also spoke, tearfully addressing the Loomis family and saying how sorry her family was for their loss. She said that the Uncle Terry she knew was not the man who had done this horrible thing. In the end, the judge established an important precedent in his decision to uphold the guilty verdict against Miller, even though it had been rendered after he died. This means that Terrence Miller will go down in history as being guilty of murder in the first degree. And his case is one of the first in the nation to reach a guilty verdict based almost exclusively on the DNA evidence. After 48 years, Jody Loomis's case is finally closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you are one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Many thanks go out to Detective Jim Scharf of the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office for speaking with me about this case. I hope you enjoyed Episode 1 of DNA ID. I'll have another case for you in two weeks. In the meantime, please listen to this preview of another podcast I think you'll really enjoy called Mind Over Murder by my friend Bill Thomas. DNA ID is researched, written, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music composed by Connor Betancourt. To contact us, you can email the podcast at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on social media. You can find us at DNA ID Podcast on Instagram, at DNA ID Podcast on Twitter, and on Facebook at DNA ID Podcast. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime and Missing Persons. Announcing Mind Over Murder, a new true crime podcast. You're listening to the Mind Over Murder podcast. My name is Bill Thomas. I'm a writer, consulting producer, and now podcaster. I am now trying to use my experience as the brother of a murder victim to help other victims of violent crime. I'm working on a book on the unsolved Colonial Parkway murders, and I'm the co-administrator of the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook group, together with Kristen Dilley. My name is Kristen Dilley. I'm a writer, a researcher, a teacher, and a victim's advocate, as well as the social media manager and co-administrator for the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page with my partner in crime, Bill Thomas. Join us each week as we explore new true crime cases, as well as introduce you to experts from a variety of fields in the true crime space. You're listening to the Mind Over Murder podcast. Available on your favorite podcast platform.